Hi, everyone. Welcome to an episode of Everything is Canon, a Cinelinks podcast, a podcast where we invite marginalized authors from all genres onto the show to discuss their latest books and novels, as well as just about anything else that comes to mind. I'm your host, Steve Dunk, and thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to reach me, there are several ways to do so, but the best way is to email me at steve at cinelinks.com, or you can always find me on Twitter, of course, at stevedunk5 or at everythingcanon. And so, without further ado, let's get the show on the road and meet today's guest. everyone welcome to the show as is always the case we will continue to encourage supporting authors and stories that affirm the lives of people other than ourselves each time we either engage in a conversation whether it be online or face-to-face or each time we participate in the market with our purchasing choices a reminder february is black history month a time when we remember important people and events in the history of the african diaspora and while we have little no excuse to not be doing these things to support the black communities all year long this is a convenient time for white people to support, share, and boost causes and businesses in the Black community online and elsewhere. I will post some links after the show that you can look up in different ways you can help and support. Bethany Simara was a national bestselling author, writing for adult and young adult audiences. She's the author of novels Mem, The Song Below Water, Chorus Rises, and So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. She's the editor-contributor to the young adult anthology Take the Mic, which won the 2020 ILA Social Justice and Literature Award. Her work has been featured in the LA Times, Forbes, Bustle, BuzzFeed, and so much more. She's included in USA's Today's list of 100 Black novelists and fiction writers you should read. She's here today, though, to talk about her new book, Cherish Farah, which is described as, from best-selling author Bethany C. Morrow, comes a new adult social horror novel in the vein of Get Out Meets My Sister, a serial killer, about Farah, a young, calculating Black girl who manipulates her way into the lives of her Black best friend's white, wealthy, adoptive family, but soon suspects she may not be the only one with ulterior motives, Told in Farrah's chilling, unforgettable voice and weaving in searing commentary on race and class, this slow burn social horror will keep you on the edge of your seat until the last page. It's been named the most anticipated book by just about everybody worth a damn. I fucking loved it, and I'm even scared of thrillers. And here's the thing with reading a Bethany C. Morrow book, it brings your TBR to a dead stop as you do nothing but think about her book for the next little while. And a big part of that is with this book in particular is this ending, which will goddamn scare the shit out of you. Please welcome back to the show, Bethany C. Morrow. Hi, Bethany. Hi, Steve. They really want they really uh, want you to know what's a social horror, eh? <laughs> With that marketing blurb. Uh, oh, one hundred percent. I, I definitely. Which is fine. I'm fine them. with that. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that because I mean it is an important thing, and I and I really and I know you've uh, talked about it already, and you probably will a lot more. You'll get asked it, I'm sure. Um, but I want to make sure people are clear on, on what, on, you know, let's, we want to clear up any definitions and terms, right. Just to make sure people are clear on what we're talking about here. So, um, we will get to that in a second, but, um, I'm not letting you off the hook. You posted something on Twitter the other day, (laughs) uh, and it was ambiguous, but, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I know the answer is no, or you can't say anything, but, uh, um can you at least say uh, i think i think you know that i can say whatever i want that is true <laughs> you're, you know you're right you know that is true so anyways originally we had thought that this was going to be your your only release this year but it seems like it might not be question mark oh no no it will absolutely be my only release this year okay, i was okay, genuinely okay. i had it told too many people because I, I well, kind of just because I love saying things randomly in the middle of the night on Twitter and then seeing <laughs> how people respond to it. But um, I so that's the only place that I've really talked about it. But I genuinely felt like 
Cherish Fair was going to be sort of like my last novel for a minute because okay. I'm really I'm really focused on pursuing adaptations of my existing work. I'm really interested in and my and my big personal focus has been um, working on my my graphic novel and and my agents and I are trying to package that. I'm not willing to really go out and let somebody else take over because I have such a very specific, I have a really specific uh, vision for the first one. And I really want to find the right artist and, and have it be a collaborative mm-hmm. um, experience from start to finish. So that has, obviously, when you want to do something a particular way, it takes a bit longer. So I really thought, okay, this is what I'm going to be focused on for the next little while. And, you know, you guys can't really complain because I have released three books in like <laughs> nine months. That's right. Um, and then... <laughs> because that's just what happens when you're a writer. I mean, I had this other story, I had a couple of short stories actually. Um, and, you know, it's it's my very particular, like, and I don't mean very particular to me, but like in terms of what I write, the thing that is the most me, if I could say like, this identifies me as an artist, it would be the most important for you to read Mem. And I'm, that's why I'm so glad that it's my debut because it's speculative literary, which is a really, that's that's really my home. That's where my brain actually lives. Oh. Um, and it's adult market and it's a novella. So in terms of format and everything, it's like, that is the best introduction to me as an artist. And so I had these two short stories that were not connected, but I just kept feeling like, I don't like redundancy and you'll, you'll be able to see if you look at my publication history that um, I don't like doing the same thing more than once. Um, And I certainly don't like sort of tonally to feel like I'm repeating myself. So even with the song below water, I told the publisher like, Oh yeah, there's no way that this is going to, there's going to be a sequel to this. Cause I just can't imagine this is my first contemporary fantasy. I said what I needed to say, what I wanted to say, the whole purpose of saying it in that sort of genre. And I don't know that I'll ever revisit that. So just don't assume that. And they were like, okay. And then I was like, JK, I'm going to write about Naima. But even in doing that, <laughs> Even in doing that, Naima's beats are totally different. The right, structure right, of the book is totally right. different. The tone of the book is totally different. Um, and so it's only, you know, the only connection in terms of the actual writing style and storyline or story type is that it is by definition contemporary fantasy, only in like the most literal definition of a contemporary fantasy. If you're looking for particular tropes, if you're looking for particular like uh, beats and and sort of like tracking and mapping the story, you're not going to find it because I can't, I can't justify doing that, the same thing twice in a row. Is that for but your own I, sort of creative edification or is that you just don't want to? I can't do it. Like I can't, can't do, do it. it. Yeah. Like your brain. It, will, it feels, yeah. it feels pointless. Yeah. Okay. It feels pointless. Okay. Okay. Um, so like with these two short stories, the thing was they're both speculative literary, very, very obviously, very, very strongly speculative literary, which means that they have like this science fiction concept. And then out of that comes this very character driven case study. Hmm. So um So I knew that even though these are not the same concept tonally, I felt like having already published Mem, even though that was 2018, I was like, there's no way that if I have to choose between these, if I write this story, I'm I'm not writing this story. And I love them both so much. Um, And so I started having discussions with my agent about like, what could be an overarching sort of uh, what, what umbrella can I get both of these stories under and, and, and make it something else. Um, and so I randomly like last week 
just randomly last week, it all just came pouring out. And so it's like, okay, we know exactly what I'm doing next. Um, and I know the, you know, I know the entire scope of, of it. And I know that I want it to be, I, I will tell you that it is going to be another adult market novella. Um, so in the format of mem, if, okay. if you know, yep. it's, it's going to be a return to that sort of thing. Um, it's not, of course, it's not historical like mem was, and it's, um, it's not set in a particular, it, you know, the, the, the kind of setting as character, which I really loved about Mem is, is not, is not present here. And it's going to feel like this is a very, it's going to feel like it's very informed by the pandemic, but these are questions that I was asking um, that were just sort of brought into sharper relief in this time period. Um, and I decided that I definitely don't want to make the pandemic a feature or a part of the story. Number one, because it's not necessarily this time. It's always sort of like a near future thing for me, but um I, I just, I've been figuring out what I do want it to be and what I don't want it to be. And now it's in such a clear, I have such a clear idea of it that I know for a fact that it's going to be the very next thing that I work on. So that means that yes, within the next couple of years, I will actually have another, another book coming <laughs> okay. out. So. Well, that's good to hear. Um, that's a couple things there. One thing I was definitely going to ask you about, but yeah, just, you just said, it, I'm glad you said it right there. Cause I've been talking to some authors about this you know, if you are going to write a contemporary story, do you include the pandemic or not? And yeah, I think that's an, I think that's an interesting question, but as a sociologist, I think that you would have to accept that you're writing in progress, right. which means that like, you have not processed this. It is impossible for anybody currently alive to have processed. You could be further along than someone else, but it is literally in progress right now. And even and even in the couple of years after, I just, I don't like that we as humans try to get a handle on something more quickly than is actually reasonable or possible. So it's like, oh, I have all of these grand insights. You have grand insights for today. Okay. Like yeah. you, you don't have grand insights in terms of hindsight. You, you haven't gone through the process either internally, personally, or socially or communally. Like you, there's no way that you could have processed this to an actual point of, of insightful you know, um, understanding that's going to be more applicable than, than, than just maybe to you in this moment. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I just think that people reaching for that are really reaching for the end of the pandemic. Right. And they're sort of, they're sort of using this sort of assumption of, okay, I'm going to talk about the pandemic as though I've gleaned everything there was to glean from it. And that's going to kind of fabricate an, a conclusion to it. And yeah, and we, we haven't even been allowed. Know that's not how it works. Right, and we haven't even been allowed to grieve properly yet, right? Because it's well, still, that's that's how you that's how you know it's not. Yeah, it's nowhere yeah. near over. It's right. nowhere near right. over. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah, I sort of talked to people like, and it, obviously it doesn't have. It's not going to be the plot necessarily or the focus of the story, but even just a sort of like a simple offhand, like, oh, I had to catch up with so and so because I, I forgot my mask. Like just like a funny little right. thing. Well, like, right, and there's. Yeah. Yeah, day to day to day, day to day. Um, you know, we have a new socialization. Kids that are born, right. pandemic, pandemic babies. Um, you can, especially if you've had a, a toddler, you can you can see very very clear um, differences um, just in their behavior based on the fact that they either don't go out much or or when they do go out, they see people only half of their faces. And if that, if you do anything over and over and over again and create a habit of it and create an expectation of it that's going to change how you uh, engage socially. Uh -huh. And so, you know, you can, you can see a difference in children already um, just comparatively, but yeah, I think it's, 
you know, there were those movies that came out really early in the pandemic that were like pandemic love stories or whatever. And it was like, nobody watched it. And they totally, even on Netflix, they bombed (laughs) because people were like, what are you doing? What could you possibly have to say right now? And also I'm, I'm living it. Why would I want to watch it? Right. My parent or sister is dying from it right now. I don't fucking need. Like why, why would I want to watch this movie about it? That's going to try to have a conclusion that I know doesn't exist. Right. Right. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's a, it's going to be like, it's, and it's something we won't know until, you know, I've, I've read a, a couple of books now at this point that have talked about it, just dealt with it in some way, whether it be minor or major, but it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's some each, each, like, I think to your point, maybe each author will have to deal with it on their own. Right. And sort of, you know, yeah. consolidate their own feelings on it. But um, I've been talking a lot with uh, Tochi on Yubuchi lately and uh i know and goliath is <sighs> i'm i cannot i, I cannot oh, wait yeah you started on go it'll we'll turn this new goliath show if you want i look <laughs> it's so fucking we can totally you know how i feel <laughs> yeah. about riot baby so yeah. I'm like, we can we can totally do that um, i am i mean i'm so excited he uh as you know is just and i actually feel the same way about you in a lot of ways just i just i learned so much from reading your your books and and from when i get to talk to you i just admire the the fuck out of both of you so much and uh <laughs> it's such a pleasure to, to talk to you guys and um so we had a really good conversation about sort of how he chooses his his books his subjects his stories and mm-hmm. um it really it, it was you know it's a long conversation but it really boiled down to is he just he to his point he just really fucking loves learning new shit and I wanted mm-hmm. that, about, and I thought of, I was thinking about, you know, I really enjoyed that conversation, the answer. So I'm going to ask you some, you know, sort of a similar idea, like other than I know course rises were sort of a tangent in a way that, you know, you said this during the marketing of that book that like we ordered that book. <laughs> right? yep. like, so, uh, you know, maybe here's that su- clap back you ordered guys. That's right. Here's that's that. right. It was a custom, <laughs> a custom order. I think you called it. it was right. that, um, so maybe besides that, do you purposely seek out stories uh, because it's an opportunity to learn something new, either about yourself or a given subject, or do you approach it from a, from a different point of view? You know, this is, and I don't, I'm not surprised by this at all because Tochi is a much humbler person than me. Um, so I'm going to be really, really honest. I do not go into writing things to learn things. I go into, uh, writing things because of what everybody else is acting like they don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's a very different, it's a very different experience for me. The purpose, something has to be not just something that I view as like an opinion truth, like a subjective truth, um, but literally something that from my specific vantage point, my specific intersection of identities and experiences in the Western world, um, and particularly in colonizer countries, these are things that are unarguable. These are things that are verifiably, observably present and true. And I both expect that you are lying about being entirely ignorant about it and also know that from your vantage point and because of what white supremacy breeds, which is this coddling to the point of incompetence, um, I do also understand that I am years beyond in in wisdom simply by being a black woman in America. What I have to know for survival so eclipses what white people have to have to know that, yeah, of course, it's always going to be, it's even if I'm not saying, oh, I'm here to educate you because that's not my job, but um, I will, I will absolutely do it if you try to, if your incompetence is is impeding on the quality of my life. Uh-huh. 
if you're making my world unsafe, I'm going to tell you about yourself. Like it's, it's not a thing of like, Oh, magical Negro. Who's here to like sit down and sweetly tell you something. It's uh, no bitch. This is, this is reality. And I'm sorry that you don't have the tools, but let me try to help you with this. And it's still going to always require that people, you have to, you have to be on board. I think for much of my work and increasingly with my work, you have to understand that you have something to learn. One of the MLK quotes that like never gets quoted on MLK Day except by fellow black people is when he talks about the the audacity of white Americans to believe they have so little to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I am always, I'm not gonna come all the way down to your level because I can't bend that far. Um, I'm going to require that you are also, that you're stretching, of course. Um, but yeah, that's the purpose of, this is my, this is, this is my community. And I will, as much as, as much as I'm very anti the institution of whiteness, and obviously, as we know, that's not individual people who are, who are, uh, caught up in that group, but literally the institution, the violent institution of whiteness that was created specifically to conglomerate power and to subjugate people. I also am a community minded person. I understand that I am am we. I do not exist in a vacuum. It's why clinical psychology did not did not work. Like I did not work in clinical psychology because there were too many instances where you're trying to to isolate people's behaviors and patterns and everything. And I believe that I I'm gonna just this is like you're gonna you're gonna get so much feedback from just this that has nothing to do with anything. But I don't think that there should be a psychiatrist practicing who doesn't have a background in sociology. I'm just going to be honest. Um, You should be starting, you should be starting from the macro to understand the micro. So because I feel that way, my, the reason that I feel the way that I feel about whiteness and, and the way that it's insidious and, and violent and, and just completely destructive is like, it doesn't mean anything to be American for all the traditionalism and all of the, you know, oh, every stand for the pledge and all of this sort of like prove to me that, you know, you submit to this. There's no sense of like, I, I, I knew this when I was a kid. There's no sense of citizenry. There's no, we're consumers. We're not citizens. Um, there's, there's no feeling in a, on a great scale of um, care or concern. And I, and that sounds so, it sounds so simple, but the fact that I noticed this in elementary school and it bothered me in elementary school, I was like, why do I need to stand for this pledge when I feel more of a loyalty to my hometown? We know we breed these, we're, we're tribal by nature, right? And we, we have to like fabricate these, these uh, feelings because we don't, because we're not getting them from from our national identity, we're, you know, we're getting, we're getting terror. When I see the American flag, that, that for me is, is always a, a mostly unpleasant because of the way the flag has been used against me. Seeing the flag usually elicits a, a trepidation or some sort of anxiety. So as a kid, I was genuinely like, shouldn't I shouldn't it mean something that I'm American? Like, shouldn't I know something is true based on that? Shouldn't I feel at home someplace because that's true? Um, and that always just bothered me. That always bothered me so much. And I really genuinely, that's, that's the failing, that's the failure 
that's what we've given up for for white supremacy is is actually having siblings, national siblings, like actually having a community that, you know, all of these all of those songs that I still for some reason know the words to probably because I went to private school in the 80s. This land is your land. The sun is my land. All those kind of all of those kind of songs like every time we sound, we sung them, I was, I was that kid who was like reality imposes on me, no matter what you try to get me to memorize or recite reality will always impose on me. And I didn't understand that, 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 that wasn't true for, for other people that they would just go along with, with uh, allowing society to construct this mythology. And even, even when it failed and it never stood up to the slightest interrogation. Like people just continued with that traditionalism. And I was like, no, I want what you're actually saying is true. I want that to be true. Um, And I think you don't get there without honesty and interrogation and indictment. And so it's like, that's not tough love. That is literally the only love. Right. And that's an interesting thing too, because, you know, you don't strike me as somebody who, who wants like an ethno state, right? Like you, you want, you want to be welcomed. You want to be part of the broader community, but you're just not being allowed. Like you're not being well. Allowed. And the, the yeah. thing is, like, yeah. I, it's not that I want to be welcomed, as in I want to be accepted. I want you to acknowledge that I am already here and yeah. I am extremely right. important, right. and you don't exist unless I exist. Mm-hmm. So it's you know I always have to make sure that it's framed correctly because I really need people to be to understand what I'm saying. I'm not asking for a seat at your table. I'm telling you, it's my fucking table. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. I was, you know, one of the other things too, sort of talking about Tochi was, you know, especially with his books, because he, he's, he, you know, he's, there is this educational aspect to them. And, and he strikes me as a teacher, he'd make a great teacher. Uh, well, he was in education. Um, what, what would excite you more? And maybe excites a terrible word, but what, what would be more satisfying if someone came up to you and just said, I really fucking just enjoyed your book or man, I learned a lot from your book. Um, I guess, neither of those this is going to sound so terrible and i <laughs> literally i'm i'm not trying to be like this i'm just i'm just trying yeah. to be super, super honest and sometimes oh, yeah 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 sometimes people think that that means like there's no uh, you know there's no emotion or anything and that's not the case i can i can experience what you described for the other from the other person's perspective and i and i appreciate that they're experiencing something and i want to be you know encouraging of that and be a part of that with them but what actually matters to me is someone who can articulate what they're what they what they heard Mm. because a lot of times I will have people, and I think anybody who creates anything and particularly creates something that, like I said, is not is not a part of the status quo, is not a part of um, the, mytho- the mythologizing process. Anybody who writes that sort of thing, you will have people come to you and be like, I love this. I love this so much. This meant so much to me. And as the person is describing what meant so much to me, what meant so much to them, you're like, that's not what I wrote. <laughs> Like you literally, you literally just overlaid what you already knew and what you already believed over my story and interpreted it in the most appeasing way possible. And you had to completely erase me and actually what what's on the page. And people think that's not possible. It's like, well, whatever you put on the page is what people are going to read. Not true. People are socialized. People come with their own baggage and their own beliefs and their own implicit biases. And they're going to largely look for that. Um, one of the reasons that it was so, let's say people who've already been interested in, in uh, reaching out about adaptation for Cherish Farah, 
one of the first conversations that I had with somebody, I knew immediately this isn't going to go anywhere because the way that they were describing Farah, I was like, that's not, that's not the book I wrote. They had rewritten her according to what would make the most sense to them. So Farah became really, um, she became really fragile and she became really, all of this was acting out because she was so afraid of, you know, losing her, her home and for, for reasons of like security reasons. And, and a kid has to have a foundation and it has to know, you know, and so she really is, um, she's really envious of Cherish. And I'm like, okay, so you don't, you didn't read that character at all. Like that's, that could not be further from the truth. That is absolutely not Farah. You have to start with accepting her psychopathy if you're going to understand who Farah is as a person. And if you come into it with your own feelings about financial insecurity, um, then you know you're you're not going to read the book that I wrote. So what matters to me a lot is finding people who read what I wrote, and finding and honestly finding people who read the way that I read. And that's why certain books are so impactful to me. Riot Baby. Look, this is just going to be the Tochi show because <laughs> listen, yeah. reading as soon as I yeah. started reading that book, I was like, he's writing to me. He's writing about me. He's right. Like, this is so personal. This is so specific. This is so. And the fact that that is what makes a book so universal is is the specificity is the is the particularness of it. It's not trying to be so without form and without message that which is a message in itself, but um, that and that just anybody can pick it up and get it. No, like we all have these very intimate histories and and experiences and memories and things that shaped us. And if you don't, if you can't touch on that, you're not going to connect with anybody, let alone everybody. So mm. anyway, so like, so, so there was an article or there was a review in Locus magazine for, um, for Mem when it came out, uh, written by Catherine Coldiron. And I remember reading it and being like, this person reads the way that I read. And this person talks about this book the way that I talk about this book. And we ended up becoming friends and she came to my, she came to my Los Angeles launch. And I remember when she told me, like, I was kind of surprised that you liked my review so much because, you know, because there were critical parts of it. And I'm like, right, that were um, well explained and reasoned. And I totally appreciate it because I don't need for you to love my work as if you, if you honestly engage with it, I would, I'm more apt to read, like it's, I'm, I'm more, I'm more likely rather to read a review that is a critical review, entirely critical review. If there, if there's a logic flow to it, if they're Mm -hmm. expressing exactly what they mean. Um, because a lot of times you'll read these reviews that are just like gushing, but they don't say anything. I don't, I don't even know that you read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. You're you're just gushing, 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 but you're not really, you're not really engaging with the, with the book. And look, this is not, this is not to police people's reviews or whatever. These are, I'm just talking about reviews that people send me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, I'm not talking about going and then like grading reviews on Goodreads and being like, "Mm, be more critical, (laughs) be more thoughtful. I'm just saying what, what hit it's me as the as the writer right it is seeing people that very obviously are are engaging and it's more it's more just a kinship feeling because it's okay that's the way my brain works so right. that's you know so it, it means something to see to see that reflected in other people it feels like community it feels like finding 
it feels like finding your people. Right. It's come up, they've come alive in a way that you just can't almost, you can't even explain it. Right. Um, um, let's do, let's, we, I do, we have to talk about the book here, but I do want to bring up just the hot topic of today, book banning, uh, with you. Cause like for a lot of people, it's an issue. A lot of people forget about because of privilege. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's a hyper object in a way, like it's so big, you can't even see it. It's this idea that like, if it's not happening to you or in front of you, then it's not happening at all. Like my lab, my lab, my library's fine. So what's the problem. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, I probably know what your take is, <laughs> you know, but cause it's, cause to me, it's the reasonable take, right? Like it's, it's clear, it's insidious what's happening. Like it's, it's, it's gross. Um, and it's happening in such a specific systematic way that it's, it feels like such a big mountain to tackle, to climb. But, you know, like one thing I've done is like, I printed a list of a lot of the books that have been banned in the U S and I went to my local libraries and see if I could find them all. And I, I was happy to say I could find most of them, but Again, mm-hmm. that's that privilege, right? So, like, what any thoughts? Like, that's maybe you know, that's maybe some anything that you've got to say about it that maybe somebody isn't saying. I don't know if it's something that that other people aren't saying because I think that most marginalized uh, and particularly racially marginalized authors are already saying. Um, I literally, before I came on here, was uh, responding to Samira Ahmed's thread about right. it. Um, so I'm really just going to kind of quote myself because I just said <laughs> yeah, go for it. before yeah. we got on here. Yeah. Um, but the thing that bothers me is that from a position of privilege, I want people to understand that there are certain things that your intent is never going to be divorced from your position to right. the system. So the people who immediately lead with the silver lining you know exactly what that person looks like. Like, you know exactly what a demographic that person is from. So take that how you will. But if you're leading with the silver lining in something like this, you are out of touch with my experience. You're also out of touch with the consequences, with the with the real world consequences of this sort of behavior. You're not recognizing the, the fact that this is a full-on war. If you look at a map of the United States right now and you look at it, it's and you put little markers on every every city or every town where this is happening, you see that it is a national battle. It's happening at the same time all over this country. That should terrify you. Yep. That on its own should terrify you. These are not isolated incidents. And the reason that people from the power majority demographic can lead with silver linings is because they don't they don't have the, the, an organized an organized war does not threaten them they they do not immediately recognize that as violence because it's not violent toward them and their belief is that I will be able to well, I'm going to make sure my kids get it. Okay, and do you understand that this isn't just about a particular book or a particular story? We're talking about erasure. We're talking about white supremacist triumph. We're talking about empowering and emboldening onlookers to do this type of violence or similar in their own circles of influence. So you're talking about a an ongoing campaign against our humanity that leads to and always has led to real world, physical, mortal violence. And you're talking about, well, I'm just going to make sure that somebody gets that book. You are able to see these things as individual, as individual isolated incidents when that is not what they are. 
It's, and they are 100 yeah. percent a result of having set the stage politically for this moment. Right. And so, so this is all a part of an ongoing this is all part of an ongoing attack from a party that has proven, and I can tell you this as somebody who was raised in, in a sort of evangelical um, background, these are people who have always been thinking about the 30-year game. Right. Democrats are always looking at the next election. They're looking at midterms. They're looking at national elections. And the other side has always been like, okay, first we do this. 10 years, we'll be able to do this. 10 years, we'll be able to do this. By this point, we'll be able to do this. And they have stuck to that. They have a theological um, sort of consistency. Yeah, like like the, like the pro-life movement, for example. You're right. They've been like all these judges, you know, at every, every level of court and, you know, go down the line and can't from candidates to everything else. Yeah. They've, you're right. To your point, they do. This is a, this is a marathon for them. They don't, this isn't a sprint. This is, th- yeah. no, this is, this is a yeah. war for them. Yeah. And because one side is, is waging a war and the other side is so is, you know, you have clusters of people. That's how you know that Democrats are not synonymous with like uh, pro-liberation and, and pro right. uh, pro-black or pro-Asian or, or pro-Muslim or anything, um, because we have been telling you this for eons, mm-hmm. and it has not impacted. It has not impacted the way that these things are responded to. And you cannot, from an activist point of view, you cannot out-organize institutional warfare. And it's they're emboldened to the point of. Like they don't even throw in a couple of books that they deem worth, worthy, whatever word you want to come up with, to, to like to try and confuse the confuse the issue, right? Like it's it's they don't it's, they don't have yeah, to they don't have they don't, to yeah they don't, yeah, they don't yeah, have yeah, to yeah, use yeah. dog whistles anymore. Right, this right. is this is what the last presidency set up. They don't even have to use dog whistles anymore. Right. And all and all that's happening is people are reporting on. Can you believe this heinous thing this person said? And I'm like, the you have to look at the fact that there are no repercussions. There are no repercussions. So now you reporting on it and the way that they're reporting on it um, let you know that white supremacy is not going to die in this country, is not going to be rooted out in this country because neither side has a vested interest or material gain from doing that. Right. If you're wondering why all of this is still happening, if you're wondering why the current administration isn't doing anything about these really, really obviously troubling and and honestly, you, it's a roadmap that's been played out in so many countries before that it would be ridiculous for somebody to pretend that they don't know where this is going. Um, and if you're wondering, like, well, how, why why wouldn't they do anything? Well, you're you're thinking that your your desired outcome is their desired outcome, and that's not true. Right. Right. Well, yeah. Like I said, it's it was it's again seems to be trending again today. So I wanted to talk to you about it, but. Uh... Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, I reposted a thing from book, right. About a budget and they, a really detailed list of things that you can do at every, whether you're a citizen or in the system or whatever. And, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Just, well, here's the thing. It seems yeah. massive daunting, but if you look at what is actually happening, if you look at it as the fact that it's a war yeah, and it's, it's a white supremacist war that's being fought. Yeah. If you are white, you are part of the power dominant right. demographic, right? You don't get to say it looks daunting. You are the person most empowered by the current system to do something about it. Yeah. The ridiculous thing is asking the oppressed classes, the, the racially marginalized classes whose literal lives are on the line, ridiculous to ask them to like, okay, teach us what to do. What are you talking about? 
why, why would you literally are, you're literally holding all of the political and social capital. And then you're being like, what do I do? I'm like, no, see, this is, and that's part of, of course, why white supremacy does this coddling to the point of incompetence thing, because the, the people who are the most um, empowered to affect change get to walk around and act like victims. Um, we got to talk about the book. <laughs> well, that is talking about the book. No, I mean, so specifically, I think. that No, that is the book. That's the okay, book. That's, right. that's, the, that's the void. That's the void that Farrah sees and cherish right. is that she's being raised by these exceedingly privileged. And I don't just mean like the same privilege as every other, as every other white family, but these are, this is literally um, a family who is at the intersection of every privilege you can possibly have in this country. And they're raising this black girl the way that they would raise a white child, but with like a sprinkling of like social awareness. And because she's a black girl, you have this coddled to the point of incompetence that is dangerous for that girl. Because if you leave this yeah. bubble, if you, you know, you're, you're making it, you're, you're, you're making it where this child can't survive outside of your home. And, and so Farah sees this void. That's what she sees and cherish. Yeah. She sees this void and she realizes that because she is another black girl, she is, she can fill it. She can make, she can make cherish. She feels like she can make cherish whatever she wants because they've done such a great job of burrowing this hole in her. Um, I thought, I thought about the Whitman's a lot after I read this book the first time and describe the Whitman's. Well, I will say that my dear, beloved, one of my wives, um, Amy Suter-Clark, who's the author of uh, Girl 11, mm -hmm. when she was reading it, she was like, I love that their last name is White Man. And I was like, <laughs> oops, <laughs> yeah. did not did not notice that. Um, right, 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 right. <laughs> no, I mean, Brianne and Jerry are, if people are going to say like, oh, okay, all of these, all of these, all of these books are being are being um, publicized as like get out and and right. and that's getting so tiring and absolutely that's getting tiring number one because it's usually not true and b because that's supposed to be sort of like in house comps like comps were never supposed to be like sales uh, or like public facing right that was supposed to be like speak between industry professionals you know, to sort of peak interest and stuff. So the, the big reason that it's annoying is because we're not all supposed to be hearing this in the first place because it gets very redundant very quickly. Um, you know, if you're trying to get, ex you're trying to breed excitement, um, you're going to use things that have been hugely socially impactful, right? Which means you're going to hear the same thing over and over again. But this book literally did come out of my, my agent asking me, or saying that she thinks that I could do something really troubling in the vein of get out. And I was like, no, not going to, um, because who wants to do something derivative? Um, right. But then this concept came to mind that I've kind of been fascinated with since I was a kid and I read, see, this is the thing. I can't actually like talk about that part because this is, this is tricky. Yeah. This is an, this is a really hard book to talk about. Like without spoilers. Right. It's like, cause like, are we, like, are we even allowed to talk about the gift, the book? Um, here's the thing: are you are you gonna are you gonna tell people this is spoiler free? Uh, no, no, I can post I can post tags. Like that's fine. 
Okay. Like, usually, you, though, like the publisher doesn't like us to talk about spoilers, right? I don't have a problem when, talking when, about spoilers. When is this going to air? This will air the week of release, but it'll be like after the Tuesday, though, like the Wednesday or Thursday. But not, mm. but probably that week, though. I don't know. I don't what know about, can... hey, would you be willing to come back on later on? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, no, and we'll have a, course, And we'll have a spoiler talk about it? Like, yeah, because it's, it's impossible to talk about what I wrote and why I wrote I know, it without spoiling it. Right, honestly. especially like the gift. And because that gift, that scene, there's some specific dialogue, right, that I really wanted to talk about. And you're right, it's it's really tricky to talk about. So it's impossible to talk about without talking about the book, the spoiler part Okay, wait book. a minute. What if we talk about it and you cut it and save it? Well, I want to do like a whole show. I know, but I kind of just yeah. want to know what you. I just. Oh. Know <laughs> let's uh, let's let's um, we'll do when when we're done. We'll just we'll talk about it for a couple of minutes. Okay. Okay. Is that so fair? Okay. About, yeah. But so let's let's. About- I really want to know this is because this is the important part too. I really want because I don't want people to fuck this up. I want to make sure that people understand the social horror part of it. Social, yeah, yeah, social horror to me is, yes, it, it falls under the umbrella for me, both of horror and psychological thriller. And the, the thing that's that mm, concerns me is that people think racist horror instead of social horror, but racist horror means that I have to watch a Black person be brutalized. Social horror to me assumes a knowledge that I know you have. And you know how I know you have it? Get Out proved this so so beautifully the last scare in get out is the uh police lights after chris has killed her or has not she's not dead but he's wounded her and he's killed the grandfather or whatever whoever he's killed at the scene the last scare of get out is the the lights and the siren and being like holy crap and now and now here come the police and his life is over and the fact that that's the last scare requires that you know the threat of police violence you have to you have to understand the state the state violence and the campaign against black men and you have to know that despite the fact that he was completely justified and this was self defense you have to know that that's not going to matter so that to me is basically the work of get out it's forcing you in order to appreciate this you have to you have to confess knowledge of something you have to admit that you know that what's happening that thing that you claim you don't see you have to you have to have seen it to understand and actually enjoy this piece of media so that to me that to me is is what the gift scene is about um and and yeah, and for you to enjoy for you to enjoy the the end of this book and to understand what was happening in the book, you have to you have to understand this power dynamic. You have to understand this intentional this intentional um, terrorization. Um, and if, I mean, if you try to deny it, then then you have to say that that the book is nonsense. Basically, you have to say Get Out is nonsense. Um, and the the reception to Get Out. It's confirmation that like, yeah, you, you understood that that was scary. You understood why that was scary. You were scared too. You're not a black person. And you sitting in the theater were like, oh crap. And I know because I saw it in the theater and I heard some of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, oh shit. And I'm like, oh, what's the problem? It's just, it's just police lights. 
Right. Um, yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's social horror. Social horror is like, I am, I don't have to, I don't have to lean into what has never been horrific to you, which is seeing black bodies brutalized. I have to put you in a position where the thing that, where you, um, whether you say that you can identify with uh, non-white characters or not, in order to enjoy this movie, you have to understand what is a threat to him in particular. Uh, whether you want to admit it out loud or not, you have to understand that. So, so social horror puts you in the position, uh, in the psychological position to understand the threats toward this person, whether you're that person or not. And it's social horror because it's the threats are specifically, you know, things that are true in our in our in our society, uh, things that are true because of white supremacy, because of um, oppression and marginalization. Um, and right. so it doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be bloody. It doesn't have to be gory. Right. Just like that last scare wasn't bloody or gory. That doesn't mean there's no blood or gory. You've read the book. Yep. Um, but that's what makes a social horror is that it requires a contextualization and an awareness of the real world for you to understand why this is horrific. I'm never going to float face up in a pool for the rest of my life without thinking. Of that. Do you understand that it's like uh, my favorite thing to do? And like, I went on retreat. I went on retreat with my girls, and I think that you I remember those know. pictures. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my girls are Karen, Karen Strong, and Tracy I believe I volunteered Young. to be the house house boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And LL McKinney and Danielle Clayton, and like we, you know, we went to this uh, was this was it looked, like, it looked like a beautiful spot like the, the oh, place gorgeous. you had anyways was, yeah yeah it was a, it was a beautiful home in the mountains in, in Tennessee and it had an indoor pool and that was the whole reason that we chose that one because I told him I, I need you know I'm the mermaid in the group I need my pool yeah um and so I tried to get I tried to get them to swim with me and uh, you would be surprised at how unwilling these are like my dearest, closest wives. And for some reason, they kept saying, you're not going to cherish fair of me. And I was like, oh, where's the trust? That's where's a ver- the trust? It's a verb now. Yeah. Seriously, every time yeah. water comes up. Well, cherish like, is already a verb, but yeah, now even more. You're so not going to cherish fair of me. And that's I'm like, that's so, funny. so hurtful. Um, I am the same as you. I'm, well, I'm Pisces and I was born on the West Coast. I was born in Vancouver Island. So I'm, I'm born in the water too. Yeah, I would be, in, I would have been in the pool, but maybe, in, well, <laughs> it depends maybe if I'd read the book or not yet, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. And just to put, sort of put it to your point, to put a pin in that part of it. Yeah. Like, uh, for the black community, like a badge is more scary than a hockey mask, right? Like, cause that's, oh, rea- cause that's reality, right? That's like reality is far more terrifying to marginalized people than, you know, Freddy Krueger or right. <laughs> whatever, right? So um, yeah, endings. So, you know, there's all sorts of different, you know, if, if you just Google like, you know, ending tropes, you'll get like a billion different types of, of literary endings, right? But um, uh, this ending, at what point did you- Did you love it? I loved it. No, I loved it. No, these, this, this is this is the type of ending I know because we've been fed this thing that we like happily ever after, right? This is what mm-hmm. this is what we've been fed, right? Our whole lives, and the people before us, the generations. You know what I mean? This is that's the Disney thing. That's whatever mm-hmm. else. And so that's why I love. Lately, we've been getting these wonderful remixes and retellings of like the day after. You know what right. I'm saying? Like type of thing, which I love. And, and you know, Kayla's um, Peter yes. Pan, Peter Pan Darling, which was fucking yes. like so great. I love that stuff. And I love this ending so much. Um, this is a happily ever after. It's, it's right. And, <laughs> and I love this idea that, you know, this, you know, 
no one's story ends because we stop reading it. Right. And so you have that mixed with this. Do you think it's ambiguous? Like, do you, are you like, do you know? I mean, you know, cause I mean, you no. wrote it, but I, I think maybe that's the, the best way to, to, to phrase it. But like, are, are you, what is your hope that, that people. I hope that people understand know. she's going home. Yeah. Yeah. She's going home yeah okay that's that's okay i have that written on my screen in front of me the word home actually it's funny you said that i love that you said that because that's exactly yeah okay good it is uh, not ambiguous <laughs> and she and she has and she has perfectly created a scenario where she will be allowed home she has to be allowed home yeah okay i love that fuck i love that i'm gonna read i'm gonna end up reading this book again i know I'm gonna, um <laughs> I also love, and this was part of like a little uh, promotional thing that you've done. And you, I know you've mentioned it, uh, the Frank Grimes character, of course, you know, that yes, speaks to my, you know speaks, how important that is to me. <laughs> yeah. It speaks to my heart. And, uh, you know, this is such a, such an interesting way to put us into this story because it is in one way, it's completely bonkers in the sense that that's the idea, right? Like when you have a Frank Grimes character, the whole point Mm -hmm. of Frank Grimes is to be like, what the fuck? You guys don't see what's happening right now? Like this is, (laughs) please tell me I'm not the only one that sees what's going on here. The the tragedy, the tragedy of the Frank Grimes character is that he is the only person who is, who is dealing in reality. And And, right. And we know what happened to Frank Grimes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so I don't, so, spoiler okay, alert. So you've seen, have you seen, have you seen Hannibal? Yep. The TV show. So, you know, yeah. I've, I've oh, said yeah, this yeah, online yeah. too. Oh, the Dr. actor Chilton. died, eh, from that, from the movie, eh? What'd you say? The actor just died from the movie, did the Ooh. Hannibal movie. Who? The young guy, he was a French guy. He played, oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah. A skiing accident or something. Yeah, I, I saw that. Oh, my gosh. Terrible. I'm so, yeah. oh. And he was about to star in some MC. He, well, he just finished the moon. What is it? Oh, Moon Knight? Night Moon. Moon yes, Knight. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. He'd finished it. Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay. Uh, that's that's what I that's what I saw. Was okay. That he had, okay. He had finished it. But um, no, I um the thing about Dr. Chilton was they heaped all of the real world consequences right. on him. Right. <laughs> so he's he's just the Frank Grimes character who is of normal intellect because you have to remember like he's a very intelligent and, and learned man the, the most. problem is the world he's in the most in that but, well the, but the problem is the world he's in so so right. he's actually not you know he's kind of a fraud in in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the main characters of the show yeah. so it's um it's interesting to that they used him as soon as i as soon as i got to a certain episode i was like oh he's frank grimes okay <laughs> and the problem with that is they didn't let him die <laughs> Well, right, right, right. Because they because yeah. they needed this, and I thought this was so brilliant because they needed this character to continue to take the real world consequences of existing in this just tinderbox um, that that none of us would be prepared to consistently engage in. And the problem is, he kept he he was too he gave himself too much credit. He never stopped believing he he was as smart as them. Right, and so he just kept he just kept living the consequences of the fact that dude you're not you cannot you can't play this game um my favorite line from that episode of the simpsons is when uh he's like look everyone i'm a homer simpson and it's lenny or carl says you wish (laughs) no homer (laughs) says that oh that's okay okay i thought it was and that's that's the thing is you have to realize that the people around this character 
know why this character's having so much trouble and they don't relieve them. And that you see the same thing with Cherish is Cherish is the reader. Cherish is the person who like, understand that you couldn't, you couldn't survive with these people. You're yeah. not operating on the level that they are. And Farah knows that Cherish is missing something. And she can see when Cherish can't keep up and she never relieves her. She never explains. She never helps. Like she, you know, so, so that's, I think that's kind of like crucial to that type of character, to that audience insert character is number one, it, it allows you to further characterize the world that they're in and the person, whoever you make aware of the fact that they're behind, you're going to learn a lot about that person by how they respond to the to the audience insert character. Yeah, um, it's just so important to to have that, particularly when you're doing something like a psychological thriller, which is you know, and horror, which is the same thing that that Hannibal was. Um, and I think it actually works best, maybe in that in that sphere, uh, because it also relieves the audience of feeling like why didn't I see this coming? Why can't I, why am I not two steps ahead like everybody else? Cause you're not those characters. You're this character. Right. Right. <laughs> like right. don't feel, don't, don't try to struggle to like get on their level. Understand that the point of this character is sort of to affirm the fact that you're not that. You're the odd person out. Yeah. You're, you're the odd person out. Yeah. You are, you're not going to survive unless they're playing a game with you. Um, I gotta let you go because I know you gotta get you gotta get to another thing here. Um, but I want to leave with there's a and I, if you promise to come back because I want to dig into this line too because it it sort of goes down a whole other avenue uh, about you know unmasking and stuff which I really wanted to talk to you about but we're out of time. Um, so the line is cherish is how I knew what I should pretend not to know or see. So mm -hmm. like that I love that point in the book. I love the way that land line that line lands and <laughs> and that gets to a whole other thing like i just said about about uh masking and unmasking which I, if you promise to come back i really want to talk about that next time um and the way this book starts with the line an inferno is not a congregation of lesser fires it is another entity altogether you know that that's not the that was the early uh dedication you know what the dedication is now right no i don't i don't okay so do you follow me on instagram yes okay there's a reel oh you the you posted the um uh, oh yes, I put it on Twitter too. Yeah, there's a poem, and then and then it shows the dedication of the book. Okay. So I will tell you if you're listening, I will tell you that the the dedication to cherish Farah is beware the day they change their minds. Right, 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 right. Taking that, yeah, that was from um, the Hughes. Uh, Langston Hughes. Langston uh, Hughes. Warning. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so that's fuck that's because what that, that that the one that you quoted. I used that, that's a line from the book, right? And um, it's something that something that Farah says during one of her very, uh, very vivid, it's once we've gone past the point of no return, particularly with, as you can see with her, with her uh, hallucinations, her visual hallucinations. Right. Um, and I sent it to them. And then I sort of sat up in bed one night and I was like, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> And I, I emailed in the middle of the night, I was like, please change the dedication. And I, and I wrote the line mm. and I, I don't know how many people responded, but every single person who responded was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you get it. You get it. Yeah. And it, 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 
that reminds me of sort of that thing that went viral a few years ago. And what was the line? Something about be happy. We just want equality, and mm. not, just, not justice. Right. Mm. Uh, I can't remember that woman's name. I'm, I'm apologies to her. Um, but you know, she, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. That wonderful yes. speech that went viral. Uh, oh, it was beautiful. And um, yeah, it re- that reminds me of that big time. And it's fucking, so, it's, it's true. It's a hundred percent true. It's, but like this, this book, Cherish Vera is very much about what if, the people that you were terrorizing decided to terrorize you back. That's right. That's right. Um, Bethany, you know, I love it when you come on. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I love this book. Um, yes, please come back and we'll have a, yes. a really yes. fun spoiler. I, discussion. Want a, I want a spoiler heavy. Yeah, conversation. let's do that. Let's do that. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk after we disconnect here and decide, you know, what an appropriate amount of time is to, <laughs> to do, right. know, not to have the conversation, but to post it. Um, right. We'll talk about that after, but Thank you so much. What do you got uh, launch week? Do you have anything planned yet or is it a little too early? Yes, I uh, will. So I think that people probably have figured out that Loyalty uh, is my favorite bookshop. Yep. It's a, It has two locations, but the location that I always visit is in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of D.C. And I will be speaking with Kenitra Brooks, okay. who is a horror scholar. And I am beside myself. <laughs> I am beside myself with excitement. That's going to be actually on February 10th. Perfect. Um, and I will, of course, be posting online about it. But I am I am so looking forward to that. That uh, That's going to be amazing. And I love that, you know, you're really leaning into what what this book is, what it's what right. what it's about, like who, who, what it, what its intentions are. Um, because I mean, I even saw something earlier today, you know, it was like uh, Nyedi Okorafor, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, why are people talking about Noor as a young adult? Like it's not, it's an adult. It's it's yep. people just make leap to that, right? Like they yes. don't even, they, they're just not, they don't take the two seconds to read. <laughs> right. You know? it's, so, it's so interesting you know? that readers don't read. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's true, right? But they, that's all it would take, but yeah. Right. Yeah. But anyways, good luck with the launch. Um, Again, thank you so much. And I know you got something else to get here, but uh, yeah, thanks so much, Bethany. You know, I always appreciate it. There you have it. Another episode of Everything is Canon all wrapped up. Huge thanks to Bethany for stopping by again. I'm such a big fan of this book, of all her books, really. So make sure you pick up a copy, which you can do now wherever books are sold. And head on over to bethanycmorrow.com for more information. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen. And head on over to cinelinks.com for the latest movie, TV, books, and gaming news. Please continue to be safe out there. Bye for now. Yeah. <laughs>